The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. As you guys know, I went to Western Seminary. It's where I studied at Western Seminary up in Portland. And Todd Miles uh, was not just my favorite professor that I studied under. I probably was spent more time under him. I took a whole bunch of classes, church history and theology classes under Todd. And, uh, and, and I can honestly say he was my favorite teacher there. I learned more about the Bible from Todd than I did really anyone else, probably anyone else in the last 10, 15 years. Um, Todd has just written this book that's getting a lot of traction out there now called Superheroes Can't Save You. And let me tell you, this book is a really creative... I, I just noticed, Todd, by the way, you have a recommendation from the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary that says this is the most brilliantly creative Christology text I've ever read. That's how much did you pay for that? Like that's an incredible compliment, man. That's huge. But but what he does is he takes some of the classic uh, heresies or, or false beliefs about Jesus Christ. And, and he's found a way to compare them to superheroes in a way that helps you understand. So taking really deep study in Christology, but, but bringing it on a level that, that can kind of make sense. So, so for example, uh, those who believe in liberalism, that Jesus wasn't really God, he was just a really gifted human. Well, that's Batman. He can't fly. He ain't got lasers coming out of his eyes. He doesn't have any of that kind of stuff. He's just a remarkable human. But, but it's more than that. This book goes into, hey, but why is that a big deal? Why does that matter? Why does that affect our salvation if that belief were true? Um, and this weekend, we've actually been blessed. Todd has done a workshop here at Heritage, as many of you know, Friday night and Saturday morning. And let me just tell you, it was fantastic, fantastic time of studying some of this. So yeah, some of you guys were there. You loved it. Yeah. Um, so we have two of these books, Superheroes Can't Save You. It's a study of the person of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to have two of these up here. As you guys know, when we give books away, we have two rules. Rule number one, rule number two is have to pass it along, which someone passed along a parenting book over here that doesn't look like it's been opened. So whatever rebellious kids up there, you know, I don't know. We'll see. Maybe they lost their kids in the smoke. Who knows? So anyway, so those books are here, but more than that, it is a absolute privilege for me to introduce to you guys uh, my favorite professor and a guy who's had a profound impact in my life and in our church indirectly. Um, he's going to preach the word to us this morning from the book of Revelation. Will you guys welcome Todd Miles up here? I'm going to start, uh, keep expectations really low. I'll start out by not even remember to turn on my mic. And yeah, if you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter five, Revelation chapter five. Should be easy to find. It's at the very end of your Bible. Revelation five, while you're turning there, let me say I bring you greetings from Western Seminary. Bringing greetings from Henson Church where I get to serve as an elder and they will have prayed for us this morning. Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. John, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, writes this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please bless us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jeff mentioned that I, I teach at Western Seminary. I live in Portland, Oregon. And so I don't know what you're thinking about that right now. You know, there's the Keep Portland Weird is kind of the anthem of, of the city. And it's Hipsterville, for sure, for sure. So I come to you now, I have a confession to make. I am not a hipster. 
For many of you, you might not have realized that. If, if you don't know what you're looking at, if you don't know what you're looking for, you might have looked at me and thought, well, Todd's from Portland. He must be a hipster. And, and then if you knew where I lived, I, lived on, I live on 20th and Taylor. It is the very heart of Hipsterville, the very heart. And I, but my confession is this. I, when it comes to being a hipster, I am a fraud, uh, a pretender. I'm basically just a squatter, as it were. If... I, I, I live under the constant threat that any time the cool police are going to knock on my door and say, Todd, we figured it out. You don't belong here. And I will say, you're right. I have no plea, guilty as charged. Now, if you knew what you were looking for, you would recognize that I do not in any way act like a hipster. I am not a big fan of beer. I, I loathe coffee. And I have absolutely no desire to get on a skateboard or even a bike, for that matter. But, but behavior is really not the most important part, you know, acting like a hipster. When it comes to being a hipster, you have to look the part. You have to look the part. You would have to hit me over the head with a two-by-four before you got me in skinny jeans. It will, it will never, ever happen. I, I am absolutely incapable of growing a beard. This is like about six or seven days growth right now. My, the only body piercings that I have come from my morning trek from my bedroom into in the kitchen where I step on my kids' Legos. That's, that's it for piercings. And, and, and short of these self-delivered ink stains on my fingers, I have no artwork on my body at all. I haven't been able to think up an inscription that I want on my body for the next 25 minutes, let alone the next 25 years. And even if I could come up with such a a message to to tat on myself, my arms are so skinny, it'd have to be an abbreviated memo at best, right? (laughs) So behavior marks, they are the telltale signs of authenticity. And self-attestation will get you so far, you know, I could say, I'm a hipster, but then you would look at me and observe me, you go, you're not, you're not. You have to look the part, you have to play the part in this fickle world that we live in. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? People come with expectations, and oftentimes you don't meet those expectations. And what happens when people are looking for someone who they believe is going to save the world, save their nation, save them? What happens when those expectations aren't met? What happens if people are looking for something other than what you are, even if you are the one tasked with that? This morning, we're going to look at two entries of Jesus Christ into, or to his people, into his place, as it were, And in the first one, we're going to discover that there is a lot of joy over Jesus arriving on the scene, but there's also going to be some confusion and ultimately rejection. And we might wonder why, why the rejection? Well, the answer is going to come in his second royal entry, when Jesus enters into the throne room of God, and there there is no confusion. And so this morning... If you're here and you do not understand yourself as yet to be a Christian, I would like for you to consider the question of your greatest need. To quote the great theologian Bonnie Tyler, if you are holding out for a hero, what will your hero look like? Will you recognize his marks? If you don't think you will, how how are you going to recognize him? And if you don't think you're going to recognize him when he appears, who has the authority and wisdom to bring clarity to you? Think on that. For the rest of you, you understand yourself to be a Christian. You're a follower of Christ. The invitation is basically the same, but I would like for you also to consider how might better understanding of both yourself and your Savior lead you to better service and worship? So, we'll begin in Luke chapter 19. Keep your fingers in Revelation and turn over to Luke chapter 19. And what we're going to find in Luke 19 is that outside heaven, praise is imperfect. Outside heaven, praise is imperfect. I'm going to read this passage to you and then I'll comment on it briefly. We're we're getting towards the end of Jesus' ministry in Luke 19. I I didn't even ask how far you are in the Gospel of Luke. You're not there yet. Okay, well... Sneak peek, right? Bonus here. Jesus is getting towards the end of his ministry. 
this is his royal entry into Jerusalem. It's a time that had been prophesied by the, by the prophets of the Old Testament. It's the day that Israel should have been waiting for, time to receive her king. So we begin in verse 28. And when he had said these things, that is Jesus, Jesus went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage in Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? I love that. Where are you going with my animal? And, and they, they say what Jesus told them to say. The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So the disciples are there. There's a multitude of them. They have arranged this thing. Jesus comes down off the Mount of Olives, down into the Kidron Valley, and he's going to go up to the Temple Mount. And they are praising God, the disciples are, for all the mighty works that they had seen. And we have to admit, as you read through the Gospels, Jesus' ministry had been one continuous stream of mighty deeds that both demonstrated Jesus' right to be king of the kingdom of God and that had also brought a real foretaste of the kingdom to them. In Jesus, word and deed are perfectly enmeshed. They come together wonderfully in Jesus Christ. What did that look like? Well, if you've read the Gospels, you know the lame walked, the dead were raised, the sick were healed, the, the demonized were exercised, the, the hungry were fed, and the poor had good news preached to them. All of that had been anticipated by the Old Testament prophets. And when the king of the kingdom arrived, this is what he would do, and this is what the kingdom would be like. It would be characterized by things such as that because what Jesus was demonstrating is he healed people that in the kingdom of God, there is no sickness, there is no death. In the kingdom of God, people do not go hungry. In the kingdom of God, Satan has no sway at all. That's what it's like in the kingdom and that's what the king is like. Jesus had, from start to finish, demonstrated his kingly worth. He had done the exact things anticipated of the Messiah in verse 38, verse 38 the, the disciples are, are praising Jesus as he comes down the Mount of Olives, ready to go up to the temple. And, and their praise of him indicates that Jesus should have been welcomed by the people of God, Israel, as a leader and agent of God. Of course, Jesus is more than just a mere agent or, or leader. He is the king. And so the disciples, they praise Jesus. Peace and joy are proclaimed just like at his birth, when the angels heralded the arrival of the king in Bethlehem by talking of peace and, and joy on earth. And so it demonstrates that from the beginning of Jesus' life all the way through his public ministry, it had been ordained by God as a good thing. It is, it is good now that the king is here. The disciples were excited, but not everyone was. The excitement was not unanimous. The, the Pharisees are clearly concerned about the Messianic confession. And just like these killjoys who are just wandering around telling people to just rein it in, Jesus isn't quite what we are looking for. They want to quell the fervor. It's not clear whether they thought the praise was inappropriate or blasphemous or maybe just not politically wise. Don't, don't rock the boat. We have a tenuous peace with Rome here. But they order it stopped. And more than that, they tell Jesus, rebuke your disciples for doing so. And Jesus' response is remarkable, isn't it? It's, he says, I, I won't. I will not stop them. 
He understood the disciples' praise of him to be entirely right and proper. In, in fact, he said that the disciples are compelled to do so by all that is right, by all that is good. And if they were to stop, the very rocks would take up the anthem. Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees is very clear. Guys, even the inanimate creation can recognize the king when it shows up. Why can't you? Why can't you? Why can't they indeed? Within, within one week, the king's people, Israel, would have their way. They would reject their Messiah, their Savior, their king. They would have him crucified on a Roman cross. Creation might have been able to recognize her king, but neither the Roman Empire, the power brokers of the age, nor the people primed to receive her king, Israel, recognized him. And we have to ask, what went wrong? What happened? Why the confusion? Why the rejection? And then the cruel maliciousness against this itinerant preacher, Jesus of Nazareth. And if, if Jesus truly were the king that his disciples proclaimed on that day, why was his mission seemingly so easily ruined? What was to become of the kingdom that Jesus had been proclaiming? Were the Old Testament prophets wrong? Would judgment not come upon the enemies of God? Would God's people not be vindicated? Would the creation not ever be renewed? And then consider Jesus himself crucified, killed on a Roman cross, a symbol of torture, of ignominy. He didn't look the part of a king. His regalia was a cruel joke, a purple robe, a crown of thorns. And now to make matters worse, he bears forever the, the scars, the marks of crucifixion, the holes in his hands and his feet and his side. They, they bear testimony to his rejection by his people. Crucifixion scars are not royal marks, not in the Roman economy. They're the marks of a common criminal. They're marks of shame. They're marks of embarrassment. We're left asking ourselves, what kind of king is Jesus? Well, the answer to that we find in our text in Revelation 4 and 5. So flip back there now, Revelation 4 and 5. You cannot understand what takes place in Revelation 5 without reading Revelation 4 first to, to make sense of what kind of king Jesus is. We're going to look at another triumphal entry of his. It's found in this, in, in this passage we look at. And in Revelation 4, which establishes the context for Revelation 5, we find this, that in heaven, God is praised perfectly. In heaven, God is praised perfectly. In, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, we're, we're told that John is issued into the throne room of God. He gets to peek behind the curtain, as it were. And God is sitting on his throne. It signifies his awesome rule, his, his perfect judgment. In verses 3 through 5, we get a picture of God on the throne and of the Holy Spirit. There's all sorts of dazzling jewels, and there are 24 elders there who are sitting on 24 thrones, and these 24 thrones surround the throne of God, and it's an incredible sight. And, and so you might ask me, who are these 24 elders? And so I, I tell you, with all of the pedigree that being a professor of theology at Western Seminary brings to bear, I don't know. I, I don't know. Three most important words in theology, I don't know, okay? They will serve you well. They will serve you well. But there's lots of debate about who these beings are. Some believe that they represent humanity. Some believe that they're a ruling class of angels or they're heavenly beings. And at, at any rate, they are remarkable. They're remarkable. And they surround the throne of God. And there's also a reference in this passage to the seven spirits of God. I think that's probably a reference to the Holy Spirit who is there. He resides before the throne of God with God. And then as we work our way down through Revelation chapter 4, there are four strange beings who are covered with wings and, and eyes. And they're, they're, they're odd. And, and so you ask me, again, what, what are these beings? 
And I tell you the same thing, I don't know, right? But, but they're covered with eyes, which is, which is weird, but I think that signifies that they keep unending and uncompromising vigil over the created order. They see everything. And as strange as they are, our focus is drawn away from what they look like to what they say. And in unceasing praise, they proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they are joined by the 24 elders then who cast their crowns before the throne of God, proclaiming, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It is an awesome scene. In heaven, God is praised perfectly. And so we should pause to consider the nature of this heavenly praise. God is praised here for who he is, his character, his essence, as well as his role of creator. We are told that God is the eternal self-existent one. He's the one who was, is, and is to come. He always has been, he is, and he always will be. And what's emphasized here is his eternality, his self-existence, his self-sufficiency. He's also praised as creator, the one who exercises sovereign governance over all that he has made. And we find here, just like we find in the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We find here that there are basically two kinds of things in the cosmos. There's God and there's everything that he made. And we're introduced to one of the first big theological lessons in the Bible in Genesis 1-1, the very first verse. It's called the creator-creature distinction. And in short form, it's basically this. God is God and you are not. Okay? And that's really, really important. Now, you might think that's self-evident, right? I know I'm not God. Well, take a trip up to Portland and walk down Hawthorne for a while, and you'll, you'll run into lots of people It's not all that self-evident. Yeah. You, if you get the first verse of the Bible wrong, you're going to be going sideways for quite a ways uh, through the, the rest of Scripture. God is presented here as the necessary one. He is the self-sufficient one, the independent one. And this is really difficult for us because what this tells us is, is that, that God basically doesn't need me. He doesn't need me. And brace yourself, he doesn't really need you either. You might think, well, wait a second. Doesn't God need me? Of course he needs me. I do lots of important stuff for him, right? Of course he needs me. And then you read the Bible for a while and you realize, no, God actually doesn't need anything. He's entirely self-sufficient. All that he needs to be God, he has in and of himself. You think, well, man, that's kind of impersonal and lousy. What kind of God is, I don't know that I want to worship a God like that who's independent and self-sufficient, doesn't actually need me. I want a God who actually needs me, who, who, who I bring something to the table. I think that's a better relationship. Well, until you think about it for like a second, right? And, and you realize, oh, maybe it is good that God doesn't need me. I mean, th think of this. We, it, it's, it's wonderful that God is self-sufficient and, and independent, self-sufficient, because if he needed me, if, if I brought to him something that he would otherwise lack, then his love for me would be dependent on my being able to continue to meet that need. And that would put us in a pretty precarious situation, I think. But because God is independent and he doesn't actually need you to meet some need that he would otherwise lack, his love for you is grounded not in your ability to, to, not in your ability to perform, but in the power of his promise and the commitment of his word. God loves you. Why? Because he loves you and he has promised to love you. And there is nothing, no failing on your part that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. We desperately need God to be independent. He is able to love us unconditionally because he is self-sufficient. What's of supreme importance to consider before we move into chapter five here is that God is on his throne. He is being praised by creatures who were created to praise and everything is just as it ought to be until we get to chapter five. 
And here we find out in chapter 5 that in heaven only the perfect are praised. In heaven only the perfect are praised. And in verses 1 through 4, we're confronted with this. Heaven, we have a problem. Verses 1 through 4. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel. I, I, I love that. You know, what, compared to all the wimpy angels in heaven, I guess? I don't know. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Well, what's going on here? What is the scroll? I think if we, we, we need to understand what the scroll is in order to understand John's reaction to it not being opened. If, if we were to keep reading into chapter 6 and following, we find that the scroll contains God's redemptive plan, the future history of all God's creation. The scroll contains the divine plan for the balancing of the scales of justice, the vindication of God's people, the judgment on the world. Contained in that scroll is the, defi is the divine definitive answer to how long, O Lord, how long before you act? The definitive divine answer to all that is wrong with the world. The definitive divine answer to everyone who has ever thought that God wasn't paying attention, that he didn't see, that, that he's not keeping score, that, that maybe he doesn't even care. For all of you who have ever or are experiencing tragedy, abuse or injustice and, and you have cried out to the Lord and you've wondered why don't you hear me why don't you see why don't you answer don't you care you need to understand please understand that God does see that he does hear that he is keeping careful score he does care he will make everything right and his answer and response is written on that scroll but no one is worthy to open the scroll no one's worthy to execute the justice of God no one is found who can initiate this divine judgment and it's not for lack of applicants or a thorough search is it they look everywhere they consider everyone everywhere who has ever lived and not one person is qualified no one and it's here that we're confronted with a sobering truth we may want for God to execute his justice but that justice is actually too white hot for us we might want for God to get serious about sin especially the sin of other people right? But boy, we need to know God is way more serious about sin than we could ever imagine. And, and, and we, might, we might want for God to deal with that sin. But we need to know that God's war on sin cuts right through the human heart, right through our heart. Not one of us is worthy to open the scroll. Not one of us is worthy to even enter God's presence and look on the scroll. Why John's heartbreak? He's just been given a view of the throne room of God where everything is exactly as it ought to be. He sees God in his holiness. He hears the perfect praise of the holy and sovereign Lord and yet confronted with the question, how long, O Lord, when will you put everything to rights? The answer appears to come back for lack of a qualified man, never. When will you vindicate the righteous, Lord? When will you punish evil? For lack of a champion, never. Now, John's is not a naive or a Pollyanna-esque view of the world. He, he knows the depth of injustice. He, he knows the vileness of human depravity. He knows it 
It has to be answered by God. He knows it must be answered by God. And the, the hope of creation, the hope of humanity is that God will act, but there is found no one worthy to initiate this long sought after divine action. And it's too much for John. He has just seen God in his throne room, praised perfectly, and then he sees God not being vindicated or vindicating his own holiness, and it's too much for him. He breaks. It says, I began to weep loudly. Literally, I began to wail. He totally loses it. Until verse 5, where heaven's hero is found. Read with me. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Yes, finally, the lion of the tribe of Judah. We've been waiting for him. He's, he's the fulfillment of promises made to the patriarchs 1,800 years before the time of Christ. One would come from the tribe of Judah, one like a lion, and he would rule with a scepter that would never be taken away. He would never, ever lose it. He's the root of David, the fulfillment of a covenant made with David a 1,000 years before the time of Christ. A member of David's line, a son, would become king. He would rule forever. And we're told here that he is worthy to open the scroll because he has conquered. Yes, yes, this is the kind of king we've been waiting for. This is the kind of king that Israel has been waiting for. A royal king like David, a lion. This is the kind of hero that the people were waiting for. It's the kind of people that the Pharisees were waiting for. I mean, this kind of lion-esque Davidic king, he makes that peaceful itinerant preacher from Nazareth, makes him look a little wanting, I think. This is the kind of king the Pharisees were looking for, that Israel was waiting for. Surely here is no would-be king who would allow himself to be tripped up by interreligious and political machinations. And then John gets a big surprise. In verse 6, who in the heavens is this? Who is this? He's greeted by two surprises. Read with me. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Surprise number one. He's expecting to see the lion of Judah, and he turns and he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The lion of Judah is a lamb? Not a lamb in terms of power, but in terms of sacrifice. How could this be? How could the one worthy, because he, had been, because he has conquered, be one who was sacrificed? And here we learn exactly what kind of hero was necessary to save God's people and usher in his kingdom. The people expected a kingdom restored to Israel. They had expected a political solution to their problems. They had expected judgment on the enemies of God. They had expected vindication for God's people. They'd expected this, and they were right to expect it, because that's exactly what the Bible says was going to happen. So, so where's the misunderstanding? Where's the confusion? For creation to be renewed, for the curse to be lifted, for all the ruling principalities that have been rebelling against God, for them to be brought into subjection, sin had to be dealt with. It had to be dealt with. More importantly, for there to be any people of God, their sin, our sin, had to be dealt with. Our sin had to be judged. You see, God could have brought about his kingdom without a cross, but, but there would have been no one worthy to inhabit it, and there would have been no place for it to be. Not one human, save Jesus, would have been allowed into the kingdom of God if sin is not dealt with. And, and here we see the majestic wisdom of God on display, don't we? That which lifted the curse and brought about the subjection of all of God's enemies was the same self-sacrificial act that brought about the redemption and ransom of his people. And of course, you, know, you understand that to be the gospel, the gospel. 
The gospel is basically this, that God in kindness did for us what we could not do for ourselves. The penalty on human sin is death, but we are unable to save ourselves. We are unable to even pay that price short of dying forever. But God in his kindness became a man in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, became a man and died for us, but rose again, paying our penalty fully, reconciling us to God so that any who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ repent of their sin might be saved. That is the gospel, of course, right? That's the gospel. And if if there are any here who have not yet... uh, turn to Christ in repentance, who, who, who are interested in exploring what it would be like to be a Christian, to be reconciled to God, to be reconciled to one another in God's kingdom, then by all means, talk to someone here. Talk to one of the pastors. Go to the, go to the coffee thing and totally take it over with, with tell me how to be saved, right? Or, or, or come and talk to me. Come and talk to me. That's the gospel, It's the gospel that saves. It's the gospel that even now is reverberating throughout the throne room of God where Jesus Christ is praised for it. And we see that in verses seven and eight, don't we? In heaven, Jesus is praised. In heaven, Jesus is praised. He, Jesus, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. In heaven, Jesus is praised. In that passage, Jesus approaches the throne. He takes the scroll from the strong right hand of God. And then John gets his second surprise. The heavenly beings who had been giving praise to the one seated on the throne, God the Father, fall down before the Lamb and worship Him. I think this is the strongest argument in all of the Bible for the deity of Jesus Christ. Why would that be? Here are these beings created to worship. And and don't we have to think, don't we have to think that if anyone has their theology of worship straight, it would be these beings I mean, don't we have to think that, that, that if there's any group of creatures or people or whatever they are anywhere who know who to worship and who not to worship, it would be these beings. And yet in the presence of God the Father, who's seated on the throne, they fall down before the Lamb and direct their worship toward Him. Boy. By way of application, I say this, do not take worship of Jesus lightly. Don't take it lightly. When we sing here on Sunday mornings as we did, it's, just, it's not just the precursor to the sermon. It's not a formality, nothing like that. We are joining with the heavenly host in participation of a transcendent and weighty activity. What we do here matters precisely because of what we confess when we sing when we praise Jesus Christ, when we grant to him glory that is reserved for God alone, recognize that if Jesus Christ is not fully God, then we are committing horrific blasphemy. But if Jesus is worthy, if he is divine, then our praise is just right, orthodox, and true. It's our duty, and it is our delight. 
Jesus were not divine, we would have expected fire to come out from the throne and consume those beings and God could have just made more to worship him perfectly and not make such lousy mistakes. You know, we imagine that God can tolerate idolatry for a while here on earth, but in his own throne room? And yet the beings turn from the throne and bow down to the Lamb. And they praise the one seated on the throne and the Lamb in the same breath. And they are praising God of whom it said, I, my glory I do not share with another. God is really, really generous. We find that through the Bible. But there's some things he's kind of stingy with. His own glory. He doesn't share that. He demands that he and he alone be worshipped. And yet here Jesus Christ is in the very throne room of God being worshipped right along with the one seated on the throne. We get a picture of the nature of heavenly worship here. We, we saw that the lion was worthy to take the scroll because he had conquered. But what had he done? He was worthy precisely because he had been slain. Notice that the, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross accomplished the salvation of peoples from every tribe, language, people, and nation. The promise made to Abraham so long ago that all the nations would be blessed through him has been kept. And, and notice the language and the theology of praise there. That they are just piling on the, the honorifics. Right? It, it just repeats over and over there. Worthy is Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus has all the right things. And I, I got to tell you, so I like comic books, but I also like Lord of the Rings a lot. And, and this reminds me of this scene in, in, in the Fellowship of the Ring. Have you all seen or read Lord of the Rings before? Okay, well, there's this, there's this kind of little Cretan hobbit. He's kind of a tiny little guy who's tasked with basically saving the world. He has to go into horrible enemy territory and destroy this ring of power, this talisman. And, and he's like, what? Why me? Why me? And, and he's got this wizard guy named Gandalf who's telling him to go. And, and so he says, how am I supposed to do that? I don't even know the way, right? And, and Gandalf says, you must use such strength and heart and wits as you have. And he says but I have so little of any of those things, right? He doesn't have any of the right stuff. Well, so, every time I read that, it makes me, every time I read that passage, it makes me, uh, in Lord of the Rings, it makes me think of this. Jesus has all of the right things. He maximally has all of those things. Wisdom and power and might and honor and glory and blessing. He has all the right things maximally, exceedingly, magnificently. So we should model our worship after the worship in heaven. How much of worship with you is really about you and meeting your needs? Have you ever walked out of a worship service and gotten in the car, kind of debriefed with the family, music, the preaching, didn't really do anything for me. Did it do anything for you? No, it didn't do anything for me. Maybe rather than asking each other what we thought of the worship service, maybe we should get in the car and think, ask ourselves, I wonder what the Lord thought of our worship today. I wonder what he thought. He's the audience. He's the one being served. Worship in heaven focuses on who God is. God is creator, God is savior, God is judge. And so our worship should be like that also. So let me tell you, theology is the, nature, is the language of worship. Theology is the language of worship. So you might think, well, what? What are you telling us? I have to go up to Western Seminary so I can worship well? Yeah, yeah, you do, you should. Um, no, you, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. But, but you have to be a learner. You have to be a learner. That, that's why the pastors and leaders work so hard in crafting the worship service here. They're teaching you to worship. In the sermons, they're teaching you to worship. They are preparing you preparing you to live in a worshipful way, preparing you to worship forever. And so one, one good way to get at that is to be cross-centered. Worship in heaven is cross-centered, and so ours should be likewise. As I read this and I see what they're praising Jesus for in heaven right now, I, I, I think, man, it's been 2,000 years. Heaven still can't get over the cross. They can't get over the cross. 
They are amazed, stunned at the lengths to which God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit went to save a rebellious people like us. I think we should be stunned too. We should be stunned too. Sometimes it loses the edge. Maybe it embarrasses us to think of what's necessary to save us. After all, a small salvation would need a small work, a small savior. The great reformer Martin Luther would have none of that. Our salvation is great, he said, because our need is so great. He demanded that people look at the cross. At the cross, we see the perfect commingling of God's mercy, power, holiness, and love. He said, if you really want to know what God is like, look at the cross. And he said, if you really want to know what man is like, look at the cross. Look at the cross. It straightens out all of our theology. The cross of Christ brings laser-sharp focus to the majesty of God, and it puts to death the lie that humans are, we're not that bad. We just need a, a little help to meditate on the cross. Read Matthew 21 through 28, Mark 11 through 16, Luke 19 through 24, John 12 through 21. Those are the passion narratives that cover the last week of Jesus' life. It makes up such an inordinate uh, proportion of the Gospels. Explore the cross. If if Jesus' death becomes the means by which he is granted the throne, then apparently there is far more going on at the cross than just the forgiveness of my sins. The creation can be renewed because of the cross. Jesus Christ sovereignly rules at the right hand of God the Father because of the cross. Even now, Jesus intercedes for you because of the cross. And so celebrate the cross. So much of the Gospels are committed to retracing the events of Jesus' last week before his crucifixion. And, you know, we do that in the church. We have the, the Passion Week. We have, maybe you have a Good Friday service, and you think, Good Friday? You start to think about it. Why do we call that Good Friday, where we, we celebrate the death of Christ? This is like humanity at its worst. It's the lowest point for humanity, where we put to death the innocent Son of God, the perfect Son of God. And yet we still call it Good Friday. Why? Because of what God did in it and through it. It's the best thing that has ever happened. It is the greatest event in all of human history. And in fact, the only thing that could trump the death of Jesus Christ on the cross would be if he managed to get up from the dead somehow. He did. He did. Here at this church, you celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's your way of celebrating, of remembering what Jesus accomplished at the cross. He said, whenever you eat this bread, whenever you drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. He basically just says, remember me. He gives us this this kind of multi-sensory activity where we can taste, where we can smell, where we can hear, where we can sing and say things to help us remember this most important event. And it's really just a rehearsal. Because you guys know, right, that it's not your destiny to do the Lord's Supper forever. No, the, the day's going to come when that Good Friday Supper will give way to the marriage feast of the Lamb. The day will come when that activity of remembrance will give way to the recognition of sight. You will see the Lord Jesus Christ and you will see his scars, the scars of crucifixion. In the great hymn, Crown Him With Many Thorns, it sings this way, Crown Him the Lord of Love. Behold His hands and side, those wounds yet visible above, in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends His burning eye at mysteries so bright. By worldly standards, the scars of crucifixion are not the marks of a Messiah. They're not the marks of a king. They're the marks of a criminal. But in heaven, those scars are the telltale marks of our Messiah. They are the marks of a hero, the marks of our great God and King. And when we see him, we will fall down before him with joy 
and with praise. Amen? Let me pray for us, Father in heaven. We are grateful for the gospel. We're grateful for the cross of Christ. We're grateful to the, at the lengths to which you went in order to reconcile us to yourself. I pray, Father, you would enable us to remember that, to understand that, that the that, that, that cross would be on, on our lips, it would be in our minds, that we'd meditate well on it because it tells us who you are. And to, to, to Jesus Christ, we say this, thank you. We praise you as our great Lord and King. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we belong to you. For you created us and you have bought us. And it's with joy we say that there is no better place that we could be than in your hands. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by virtue of his great work that we can even approach this throne of grace to pray. We say amen. 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 Will you guys stand with me this morning? Hey, uh, before he gets out of here, man, this guy, Todd, has worked really, really hard to serve our church in our valley this weekend. I don't know if all of you guys know this, but uh, Friday we had a lunch that we got to host with uh, pastors and church leaders from all across the valley who all came together. And Todd shared with them about uh, kind of the divisive nature of politics and what should the church's response to that be. Then he did the workshop, as we've been talking about on Christology, on Friday night and into the day yesterday, and then came and taught two services here today, and now he's going to be driving back home to uh, see his family. And uh, could you guys just join with me in honoring and thanking Todd and the work the Lord's done through him? Thank you so much, Todd. Um, yeah. And, and if any of you are interested in learning about, you know, Western Seminary, their online programs, the cohort programs that Todd himself leads or any of that kind of stuff, man, before he gets out of here, make sure you grab him. I'm sure he'd be happy to talk with you about that. Um, please don't forget, Pastor's Coffee is going to start in just a minute. And the love offering for uh, Mercy's Gate, we're going to have some guys at the doors there. Just at the very least, stop by and see Carol and Dan, hear what they're doing and, and pray for them and just see if the Lord might have something for you there. Um, otherwise, man, Lord bless you guys. Have a great, 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 great week. God bless you.